Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Ephesians chapter 5, we will begin reading in verse 22. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can certainly read up here. And the word of the Lord declares, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself with splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. The pastor and author Ray Ortland once wrote, "The helper with excuse me, the head with helper dance of complementarity sprang from deep within the intuitions of God Himself. We men and women do not automatically know the steps to this dance." We must learn it. But if we will receive it by faith, trusting in the goodness and the wisdom of God, we can then explore its potentialities for joyful human magnificence. The truth is, if there is a text in this entire series that's going to make people sweat, it is this one. If there's a text in this entire series that's going to get people's hackles up, it is this one. If, if, if there's a text in the entire Bible that will cause husbands and wives to argue and point fingers at one another, it is this text. But it is actually not supposed to be this way. Paul's words here to the Christian husbands and wives are meant not to bring strife. They're actually meant to bring harmony and joy to married couples. His words are meant to serve as guidelines for couples so, so, so that they can experience the, the life-giving nature and the balance of the institution of marriage. Paul's words were meant to help couples have a way to live that sustains their marriage relationship, preserves the family unity, demonstrates the gospel, and most importantly, brings honor and glory to God. And this admonition that Paul gives is not just meant to explain how marriage works, right? It's also meant to point to the beauty and the wonder of the gospel itself. I mean, if we really read and understand what Paul is saying here, we will see that there is no cause for tension, but only cause for celebration and worship of of the all-knowing, all-powerful God who gives us good gifts, including marriage. Now, you might think, well, what does it have to do with a series that's titled Saving a Generation? I thought we were talking about the diminishing influence of Christianity in the culture. And yes, we will talk about that. But as we will see, this text in Ephesians is actually a, a continuation 
of the Christian faith. It's, it's, it's essential to the, the survival of the Christian faith. This text is vital to saving this next generation. But before we get all into that, let me just take a moment and just kind of give you the foundation for this conversation so we're all on the same page. First of all, we're in this series because we're at a crisis point in history with respect to our Christian faith in the Western world, especially in the United States. It's been said that Christianity is one generation away from extinction. And this isn't just some overblown emotional statement. The facts are 75% of Americans profess to have faith in God, but only 31% of Americans actually practice their faith. And only 18% of Americans actually actually have a biblical worldview. But what's more startling than that is the next generation, Generation Z, the youngest generation, people born between 1999 and 2015, that generation has, has, the, has a higher rate of, of people who profess to be atheists than any generation before it. 6% of all of the generations, 6% of that population profess to be atheists, while 13% of this new generation already reject God. 13% of this generation that's not even fully grown up yet are atheists. And this is a staggering trend with staggering implications because this generation will grow up and soon come into its own and wield power and influence in the world around us. So how did this happen? Well, as we talked about, there are a lot of factors that contribute to this. But, but so far, we've talked about four briefly, four important factors that contribute to this. Number one, the church's focus over the years on growth rather than sound doctrine and discipleship has contributed to this. Number two, the philosophy of materialism that permeates our culture contributes to this. Number three, the promotion of anti-authoritarian attitudes amongst young people contributes to this. And finally, the most profound factor is the rise of the digital age. The digital age and technology have changed the entire world, especially for the next generation. And all of these things and more have come together to produce a new generation that is theologically weak, that is biblically illiterate, pathologically self-centered, and is consuming vast amounts of information regularly that is not only, host- not, not only contrary to, but hostile to the Christian faith. And the results of this are proving to be catastrophic. And so, yes, we have good cause to be concerned. And so we asked them at the beginning of this series, what can we do about this? How can we get involved to save this generation? How can we stem the tide? And as we talked about, you know, if we're going to save this generation, we're going to have to do what the Bible calls us to do, which is to make disciples, Christ followers. We are to help other people to come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and then help them to begin to know him better and to follow Jesus. We need to disciple them. We need to teach and train them to follow Jesus wherever he leads them. And then so they can then go out and make disciples too. And we talked about the best place for us to begin to do this is is to make disciples right here, right here in our homes, in the sphere of our greatest influence. We need to make disciples out of our children. We need to make disciples out of our spouses and our parents and our neighbors and our coworkers and classmates. We need to make disciples in the circle of our greatest influence. That is how we're going to save this generation by starting at home. And the foundation of these efforts is the gospel. The gospel, as Paul says, is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the supernatural power of God to save individuals and entire generations. If we're going to have any hope at all of saving this next generation, 
then we need the supernatural power of the gospel, which means we need to master the gospel. We need to learn it, rehearse it, preach it, and live it. We need to know it intimately. We need to share the gospel regularly, and we need to live it out in our daily lives. Or in other words, we need to model it. We need to model the gospel for all the world to see. Last week, we talked about one of the most important models of the gospel is the institution of marriage. The institution of marriage is one of the most important models of the gospel because marriage, whether you realize it or not, is a picture, is a visible reminder of the gospel in action. Marriage is supposed to be a living model of the gospel in action. People are supposed to look at husbands and wives and see the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage is supposed to be this supernatural, unbreakable union between a man and a woman. That models for all the world to see the relationship between Christ and the church. Biblical marriage models the elements of the gospel like sacrificial love, covenant keeping, and living out grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And as we said, if we're going to save this next generation, we need to protect the God-ordained model of the gospel. And so last week we wrapped up this, this message last week with a call to action. And that all of us or to model the way by standing up for biblical marriage, whether it's our own or those around us. Right? And so that's where we ended up last week. And I know that was a really, really quick review. And if you missed any part of this series um, and you're like, wait, that was way too fast. Um, just, I got a couple things to help you with. Number one, in your note sheet today, I decided to just bypass all your handwriting and trying to keep up with me on that. I made a copy of all the slides for this review. And number two, if you missed a part of this, then what you need to do is go back and just listen to what you've missed. And with notes in hand, it'll be a little easier to follow along. But foundationally, foundationally, this generation is, is about, saving this generation is about making disciples in our sphere of influence. It's about knowing, sharing, and living the gospel. And as we said, one of the best ways to model the gospel is the institution of marriage. And so last week we talked about marriage externally, right? We, we looked at marriage from the outside and, 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 and how to stand up for the marriage uh, union on the outside. Well, today we're going to get a little bit more practical and we're going to talk about what marriage looks like from the inside or at least what it's supposed to look like. We're going to talk about modeling the gospel individually inside the institution of marriage, modeling the gospel in our roles as husbands and wives. We're going to talk about how husbands and wives can model the gospel and, and change this next generation simply by living out our God-ordained roles within the covenant of marriage. Now, some of you might think, well, so what? I mean, does that mean I get to take Sunday off because I'm not married? This doesn't apply to me. I mean, can I go to sleep now? No, you cannot go to sleep. If you do, we'll videotape you and put you on YouTube. All right? But no, this does actually apply to you. You see, it doesn't matter if you're young or old or if you're divorced or widowed or married or separated. It doesn't matter if you plan to get married or never plan to get married. It doesn't matter who you are. All right? What we're talking about is the Word of God and as such, every single word of God, every single scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. And that includes this passage on marriage. All scripture has some relevance and application for everyone. Not to mention, we're not just talking about marriage. We're talking about the gospel, which is the power of God to save everyone who believes. So there's something in this for everyone. 
So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 22. And, and what I want to do is I, I want to read this text again for you all the way through. And then we'll go through it and take it apart piece by piece so we can see where Paul's going here. Ephesians chapter 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself is its savior. Now, as, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in, er, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself with, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, before we get too far into the weeds of the text, there's something I think that's important that we need to point out. And what I need for you to notice in this text is that the model for both the husband and the wife is the same. The model, the reference point, the place where you begin for the husband and the wife and how they are to live and how they're to operate and how they are to, to act inside of marriage is the same. The model or the reference point for both the husband and the wife inside the marriage is Jesus himself. He is the model for both. And how the wife submits and how the husband loves. Now, why is that? Because marriage is a picture of the gospel. Paul tells us that when he says this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. It is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And at the center point of the gospel is Jesus. The center point of your faith is Jesus. Jesus at the center of all of scripture. And Jesus is supposed to be this very center of your lives. And so the center point in marriage and the reference point in marriage is and must always be Jesus Christ. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because if Christ is the center point, if he's the model, then we can be sure other things are not the reference point. Like culture. If Christ is the reference point for husbands and wives, and then culture is not the reference point. You see, culture, as we've talked about, has always tried to influence and redefine and change marriage. Culture has always tried to lift up the current philosophies and trends and the ideals for those who are married. Culture has always tried to refine, redefine the roles of those inside of marriage and how they're to behave and treat one another. Just look at art today. Just look at television and movies. Right? Husbands are generally portrayed as simple-minded, testosterone-soaked buffoons who can't be trusted. And wives are portrayed as uber-independent, over-opinionated nags who would change the world if it wasn't for their stupid husband and their kids. That's really the picture that gets painted in our culture. Culture is increasingly hostile in, 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 in calling us to redefine what marriage is and the role that marriage plays. So that it is not the model. Culture is not the model. 
And neither are the other people in your lives, like your friends, neighbors, or co-workers, or the people around you. They are not your model for marriage. They are not your reference point. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that other married people around you cannot be helpful examples, because they can. I'm not saying that you cannot look up to them when you see a healthy marriage. I'm not saying that at all. Especially those couples who have strong marriages founded on the rock of Christ. I am just absolutely saying that you can learn from those those couples. And you should learn from those couples. What I'm saying is they're not your authoritative reference point for biblical marriage. They are imperfect examples of that reference point. And so, yes, let us learn from them. but, But we must always keep our eyes on Christ as the model. Because he's the reference point, not others. And neither, and this one's the important one, and neither are your own expectations for your spouse, your spouse's reference point. Now, we're not really quite to the heart of the text here, but this is the point that we all really need to come to terms with. In fact, if there's anything in this series that you learn from me about how to live and act inside of marriage, this is probably it. In fact, just lean in here and let me be very clear about this. In fact, just clear your minds of whatever you might think you understand about marital roles and set aside your assumptions and all of your feelings because I need you to pay close attention to what I'm about to tell you. All right? Because what you need to know and what you need to own and what you need to understand is this. The part that you really need to pay attention to in this text is the part that's addressed to you. The part that you need to pay attention to in this text is the part that's addressed to you. And what I mean by that is if you're a husband, the part that you need to memorize and the part that you need to know and pay attention to are all the parts that say, husbands, do this and treat your wife like this. The part that you need to know and the part that you need to memorize is the part that's addressed to you. Not... Well, you know, the Bible says she's supposed to do this. And and the Bible says she's supposed to do that. And I think that she needs to understand that's not even addressed to you. It doesn't say, husbands, your wives need to, okay? It's not even addressed to you. It's not even your concern. Before you worry about what she's supposed to be doing, you need to worry about what you're supposed to be doing. Understand, your part in this whole thing is to do your part. Your part is to know your part. Your part is to do what God commanded you to do. What, what he's commanded you to do, not what he's commanded her to do. That's what you need to take home. Now, by the same token, wives, the same goes for you. Your part is to know your part. Your part is to, to do your part. Your part is to do what God commanded you to do, not worrying about what he's doing, not worried about what, what, what he should be doing. You need to be doing what you're supposed to be doing. You see, as Christians, we always tend to get worried about what everybody else is doing. We tend to get concerned about what everybody else is up to. We get concerned about everybody else's sin, but really not so much our own. We we tend to get worried about everybody else's obedience, but not so much our own obedience. Right? Wives, you're to worry about your parts that belong to you, and husbands, you worry about the parts that belong to you. So understand your expectations are not the model for your spouse. Christ is your expectation. And the best that you can do for your marriage is to focus on your part, which is pay attention to your reference point, Christ. Now with that, now that we've got that out of the way, let's look at the text where Paul says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
Now, if there is a word in all of Christianity that causes people to, to get all unsettled and feel weird inside, it is this word right here. Because even just as Americans, we don't even like the word submit. Right? Submit. This word, because of our culture, seems to really be a loaded term. It seems to be to bring with it a lot of baggage because when we hear the word submit, we think of, of things like bondage and we think of subjugation and unmitigated compliance. When we hear the word submit, we think in terms of master and slave. When we think of, of submit, we think of authoritarians and subjects. We think of people having to bow down right before someone. We, we, we certainly don't think of people as being equals when we hear the word submit or submission. And there are a number of reasons why we're jaded this way. The first one, let's be honest, is the misuse of the, the term in the church for so many years. The church has not always done a good job defining this word and how it's supposed to look and work in marriage. And so because of that, for many people, this text meant, that, for many people, this text here about submission meant, woman, you just need to do what you're told, right? Woman, you need to, to know your place and do what you're told to do because the man is the boss, Unfortunately, that, that, that was a widespread application of the term. And unfortunately, right, there's still some churches who think that that's what it means. Let me be clear. That's not what it means. Not at all. Submission is not a blind, unconditional obedience to your husband. And I'll explain why in just a moment. Now, the second reason why this word stirs up some negative feelings in us is because of our culture. Our culture absolutely hates the idea. Our, our culture absolutely hates and has no tolerance for biblical submission in marriage on any level. That's why the culture is always out to destroy every facet of the institution of marriage. Women are supposed to be uber-independent and, and never need anything from, from some man. And that's why women are told that they are more valuable to society as employees rather than uh, mothers and wives. In fact, culture has become really anti-male. Men are blamed for everything. All the problems in the world are the result, supposedly, of patriarchy. And the idea of a biblical submission is simply the result of toxic masculinity, is what we're told. And so culture rejects the idea of submission in marriage altogether. And the result is that, that, that both of these things and a number of other factors cause us to struggle just at the very sound of the word. But yet, here it is, right there in the text. And these aren't just the words of men. They're theonoustos. They are the very breath of God. These are God's words. God himself is clearly saying, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Well, then what does that really entail? Well, I think to understand where this is going and what, and what this is actually saying is we actually need to back up one verse and go to Ephesians 5.21, where Paul says that we are to be submitting to one another in reverence for Christ. You see, what you need to understand is that the letter of Ephesians has been a theological exposition about the unity of the faith in the church. Paul is saying that the church needs to be unified in every level, in all relationships. And as such, the church needs to practically walk in the spirit. The church needs to walk in love for each other. The, the church needs to walk in the light of truth. And the, and the church needs to walk in wisdom. And a practical application of this is that all Christians are to submit to one another, each other, out of reverence for Christ. All Christians, all Christians are to submit to 
all other Christians out of love and respect for Christ. So what does that mean? Well, what this means is, Pastor John MacArthur says in his commentary, um, every spirit-filled Christian is to be humble and submissive. They're to be a humble and submissive Christian. This is the foundation of all of the relationships in this section. No believer is inherently superior to any other believer. In their standing before God, they are equal in every way. And believers, the believer's continual reverence for God is the basis for the submission to other believers. In other words, we are commanded by God to be humble to sub- and, and submissive to everyone else. Now, since that's the context for this next section, and this is the context for Paul's words, wives submit to your own husbands as a Lord, let us clarify then what this means. And I think that the best place to begin by to, to learn that is to talk about what, what, it, what biblical submission doesn't mean. Right? Biblical submission does not mean that the husbands are, the, are superiors to their wives, because obviously they're not. You will not find this idea of superiority in the text. Men are not inherently superior to women. The fact is we are all on equal footing before the Lord. We are all the same with respect to our redeemed status. Husbands are not superior to their wives. And because of that, biblical submission doesn't mean that husbands are unquestioned authorities in their family. The husband is not the master of the wife and the wife being the subject. The husband is not does not have the right to command his wife to make his dinner and put away his laundry. He is not the monarch of the home. Wives have only one king, and it's the same king that the husbands have, and that is Jesus Christ. Marriage is a partnership. And finally, biblical submission doesn't mean the husband doesn't have to submit to the wife. Remember, we are all equal before God and we are to submit to one another in reverence for Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, that means your wife is your sister in Christ. And if you're a believer and your husband's a believer, that means your husband is your brother in Christ. We are to mutually submit to one another. We are to submit to each other in reverence for Christ. So this text does not mean that husbands never ever submit to their wives. Sometimes husbands need to. So what does this then mean? Well, what we need to do is go a little further in the text to really kind of unpack this and explore this. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord for, this is the key word here, for or because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. You see, the first thing we need to recognize is that biblical submission isn't about the husband. It's about God. Women are supposed to submit to husbands as to the Lord because a husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. You see, the center point of this entire discussion is not the husband per se. It is Christ. It is God. And what that means is biblical submission is recognizing God's leadership that he has entrusted to the husband. Because that's what we're talking about here, is God's leadership of the family. The husband has been given by God the leadership role in the family. And it's not because he's smarter, and it's not because he's more courageous, and it's not because he's a better leader. Women are just as smart as men. It's been proven scientifically. They're just as courageous as men, right? And they have just just the same ability to lead as men. 
So we're not talking about a husband's intrinsic, unique qualifications. What we're talking about is what God has supernaturally invested into husbands. He has supernaturally invested in them to be the leaders of their family. God has given husbands the leadership of the family. Why? I don't know. You might be surprised to hear me say that, but I, I don't know. Because I said, I said, we're all equal before God. And, and women and men have the same average intelligence. Men and women are both, you know, about equal in loving and thoughtfulness and courageousness. Men and women both are capable of working hard and taking care of their families. So I don't know exactly why men have been invested with leadership by God. I just know that they have. Right? And I'm not just talking about you know, saying this to affirm my position or my presuppositions because I'm a man. I'm saying this because not only does the word of God make it clear, but all the data points to it. In fact, there's lots of studies we can point to and talk about this morning, but in the interest of time, let me just share one with you. You see, 23% of saved wives and mothers, 23% of saved wives and mothers will help to lead their, husband, lead their husbands and children to faith in Christ. Whereas 94% of saved husbands and fathers will help to lead their entire family to faith in Christ. It's a staggering difference. Saved women will lead their family to faith about a quarter of the time, while saved men will lead their family to faith over 90% of the time. Why? Because God has supernaturally endowed men with the leadership of their families. That's why. When men are strong, godly leaders in their households, the entire family thrives in every possible facet. They thrive spiritually. They thrive financially. They thrive emotionally. They thrive educationally. Wives and children live healthier, happier lives in every possible dimension when the husband leaves, leads his family in the way that God calls him to lead. That's just the simple facts. That's, that's, that's the, the studies done outside of the church point to that. So biblical submission is, is recognizing God's leadership that he's entrusted to the husband. And it's also then trusting in that godly leadership. It's about trusting that God knows what he's doing. That God has endowed the husband with the responsibility of leading his family. That's what it is. It's about trusting God's plan. It's about God trusting God's design. Submission is trusting that God has ordained for the husband to be the head of the family. The way that Christ is the head of the church. And ultimately, a wife's submission to her husband and his leadership is really an act of faith in God. That God actually knows what he's doing. And more than that, it's actually an act of obedience to God because God himself has invested the husband with the leadership of his family. Now, if that's true, then what does this leadership actually look like? Because this is really important. And obviously, we've talked about leadership in marriage isn't about a husband's authoritarianism. Right? Husbands don't lead by decree. Husbands don't get their authority in their own nature. Right? They are not God. Right? What, their word is not the law. A husband's leadership in his family is not unquestionable. As a husband, if you need to tell your wife, you need to submit to me, you have, you have already, are you not leading your wife? You've, at worst, lost the argument. Biblical, uh, biblical marital leadership is not a totalitarian authority. 
It's also not abusive, as we've talked about. And let me be really, really clear about this. Abuse and manipulation in any form has no place in marriage whatsoever, be it physical or emotional or spiritual or sexual. Anytime a husband or a father resorts to abuse or manipulation, he has lost the right to lead his family. He is not fit to lead if he is abusive. Biblical leadership in the home is not abusive because Jesus Christ is not abusive. Biblical leadership because it's been created then by and granted by God himself, then must reflect the character of God. Biblical leadership has its characteristics rooted in who God is in himself. And that is what Paul says to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, please don't miss this. You see, the source and the model for husbands' leadership again is Christ himself. A husband's leadership is rooted in the identity of Christ. A husband is to lead and behave as Christ led and behaved. Because the model and the example is Jesus himself. And notice here where Paul starts. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So the very first characteristic of a husband's leadership, as Paul addresses here, is love. That's the first characteristic of your leadership. A husband's leadership is to be primarily loving. That means everything that you do as a husband and as a father must always, always be done with love. Not out of demand, not out of exasperation, not out of frustration, not out of impatience, not out of sense of self-importance. Everything that a man does as a leader in his household is to be done in love. You're to lead with love. And let's be clear, not just any kind of love. It has to be a Christ-like love. You're to love your wife like Christ loved the church. And believe me, Christ really, 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 really loves the church. With a radical kind of love. An unconditional kind of love. An endless kind of love. A love that says, you know what? She's not always doing everything I need her to do or want her to do. But I'm going I'm to do whatever I can do to make her the treasure of my life. So the first characteristic of biblical leadership is in marriage is love. And then notice what else Paul says. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, Christ, his love for the church was not only unconditional, it was sacrificial. Christ loved the church so much that he sacrificed everything for her. Everything. Which means for us, the second characteristic of biblical leadership is to sacrifice. Husbands' leadership in marriage must be sacrificial. A husband must be willing to sacrifice greatly for his wife and his kids. As a leader, he must be willing to demonstrate to them in all that he does their value. He must be willing to put their needs and their well-being above his own. They all must come first. Their needs must be met. A husband must be willing to make painful sacrifices in order to lead his family. His desires, his hobbies, his interests, his hopes, his dreams are all a distant secondary to the needs of the well-being of his family. In short, a husband, as a husband, there shouldn't be anything that he's not willing to give up or sacrifice for the sake of his wife and children. A husband's leadership is deeply, deeply sacrificial like Christ was. But that's not all. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, if this is a text that does not make the hair stand up on the back of your neck, then you really have not fully embraced the significance of what Paul is saying here. What Paul is getting at is that your leadership and your family is not about you being the boss. It's about you doing whatever you need to do to lead your wife and your children closer to God. Your leadership has been granted to you to lead your wife and your children deeper into sanctification. You are to lead them closer to God. Your love is to be a purifying love. Your leadership is to be a sanctifying leadership. Your goal and your vision for your family and your mission and your life is that they all become perfectly conformed into the image of Christ. Everything that you do in your life is aimed at helping your wife and children know the love of God better. From the way that you work, from the way that you treat people, from the way that you talk to your wife about difficult subjects, to the way that you handle discipline with your children. Everything you do must be done with eternity fully in mind. Everything you do as a leader in your family is to be centered on Christ and pointing your family toward him. Everything you do as a husband or as a father is supposed to be done in a way that points to the glory of Christ. Your primary leadership responsibility is the discipleship of your family. I want to say that again. Husbands, fathers, your primary leadership responsibility, the reason why you're endowed with leadership in the first place is for the discipleship of your family. Your primary job is to make disciples at home. You're the ones that need to teach your family to be in the word. You're the ones who need to teach your family to be in prayer. You're the ones who need to teach your family about worship. You're the ones that need to teach your family and, 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 and you need to be continually preaching to your family and your wife and your kids the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what God endowed you with leadership for. And that right there is the leadership that the wife is supposed to submit to and support. And that's the leadership that changes the world. God has created you and endowed husbands, fathers with a leadership for this purpose. And when you exercise your biblical leadership in the family, it has a huge impact. Like we said before, if a father comes to faith, 94% of his family will come to faith. Whereas like 23% of mothers can bring their family to faith. In addition to that, if a father does not go to church, I want you to really hear this. If a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful his wife's devotion is, one in 50 children, 2%, one in 50 children will become regular worshipers. But if the father goes to church, regardless of the the practice of the mother, between two-thirds and three-quarters of children will become churchgoers. That should... That should stir your heart because, we, because what does this mean? Well, it means if Christianity goes extinct in the next generation, we, husbands and fathers, are the ones largely to blame for it because God has endowed us with an awesome responsibility of leadership 
to make disciples at home. And the truth is, as a whole, as a, in our country, we're failing to do that. Because as fathers and husbands, we're telling our families, you know, your hobbies and your sports and your interests and dirt biking and playing, you know, travel ball, all that comes before God. We're telling our families that our lives revolve around material things and stuff and, 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 and possessions rather than God. You know, it's okay for you to spend four hours a night playing Fortnite, right? Because nobody really has time to read the Bible anyway. Or worse, you have fathers and husbands that are like, you know what? I just don't care what you do. Just leave me alone because I'm tired. Husbands and fathers, I need you to hear me. You've been given a God-given responsibility to lead your family. You've been given a responsibility to lovingly, sacrificially make disciples in your household. As, as brothers, right? I want you to hear me on this. Please understand, God will hold you to account. For much is given, much is required. You will answer to God for what you did with that leadership. And sisters, you will answer to God for what you did to support that leadership. <clears throat> You see, marriage is not only a model of the gospel. It is, the, is a foundry out of which we forge disciples at home. It's the place where we most effectively make disciples. It's our place of our greatest influence. That's why this is so important. So Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing and the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. We can spend lots more time talking about this text. But I think that you can see now that this text, the idea of leadership and submission inside of marriage is not what culture makes it out to be. And it's not what some traditionalists would make it out to be. Leadership and submission is not a cause for tension in the family. It is a cause for celebration. Because in this headship helper picture of marriage, we see the beauty of the gospel itself, the beauty between Christ and the church. As Ray Ortland put it, he says, the head with helper dance, I love how he says that, the head with helper dance of complementarity sprang from deep within the in intuitions of God himself. We men and women today do not automatically know the steps to this dance. We must learn. But if we will receive it by faith, trusting in the goodness and the wisdom of God, we can then explore the potentialities for joyful human significance. We see the beauty of the gospel in marriage, we see the sacrificial love of Christ and we see followers and the church submitting to his leadership all the way to their salvation. The institution of marriage is, if understood properly, if lived out biblically, has a supernatural power to shape the world. That's why the culture 
comes after it. It's a vibrant, living model of the gospel. And it's incumbent upon all of us to not only stand up for the institution of marriage generically, but we need to learn and understand what marriage is biblically, this leadership submission, gospel-centered model of marriage. We need to, to learn it. We need to understand it. We need to live in it and diligently stand up for it. We need to remind Christians and the rest of the world that biblical submission is not a bad word. It is a radically, it's a radical loving idea to change the world. That's why God calls us, all of us, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you, even for the difficult texts. And we thank you for the pictures that you've given us. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us a witness to be able to go back and examine it. And Father, I pray that we would just conform our minds and our hearts to this. We'd conform our minds and our hearts to this model that you've given us. That wives and husbands would, would learn to walk in this walk and dance the, in this dance of marriage. All the way to the glory of Christ. All the way to the salvation of our families, Father. Let us all be committed as a church, as a community, and as individuals to this institution of marriage. And let us all be committed, Lord, in every part of our life to let the light of Christ shine in our marriage, in our work life, in the way that we act in front of other people so that they can see your good deeds and give glory and ultimately turn to you and be saved. You are our only hope, Lord. You're the hope that our, our world needs. You're the hope that our country needs. You're the hope that our community needs desperately, Lord. We are praying right now for revival in all of our hearts. And we pray for revival to begin in our church, but begin it first in our homes. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray for all those who are not here. We pray for those who have lost so much. In Christ's name we pray. For listening, you've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org and please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.